We started a new series last week from the book of 1 John, so if you'll be finding that, we will continue that this morning from chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And if you do not know where 1 John is, just go to the back of the Bible, find Revelation, and then back up a few pages and you will encounter 1 John. I'm confident most of you are aware that we simply can't believe everything we see or even hear. That is nothing new. It has always been the case, but I suppose it is a little more difficult in our day and age when you can't even believe your eyes. That is, virtual reality is so good, it, it's like reality. And pictures can be altered, video can be changed, all of this kind of technology can lead us to see things that didn't really even happen. Certainly, we know it is the case when it comes to things we hear. We hear news that isn't always the truth. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's right. That's why I don't listen to that other station. That other station slants their news. Well, you're right. They do. And so does the station that you listen to. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to get unbiased news these days because everybody has an angle, everybody has a slant, and we just can't always believe what's being said. Oftentimes we hear news and it gets so exaggerated that it scares us into believing what really isn't anything to be scared of. I know we're concerned right now with this new strand of virus in China, and that's a very serious issue over there, and yet we're probably not going to be the next one to get it. There's very few, if any cases, a few cases in the United States at this point. But yet we hear these stories and we get anxious and nervous that we are going to experience it as well. Or we get scams, emails, texts, or phone calls trying to convince us to click on a link or sign up for something or send them some money and give them something which does not belong to them. And time after time, people fall for these things. We know, I think, that politicians spin things in order to get more votes. We know, I think, that salesmen exaggerate their claims in order to make more sales. We know that many people twist things online to get more likes or followers. And yet there are so many people that continue to be gullible in all of these areas and many more, believing what people say because inherently, I think we want to trust people. We want to believe that people have good hearts and good intentions, and therefore what they say is simply true. Spiritually, we do this as well, especially when it comes to those who come quoting the Bible or saying spiritual things. If they use the name of Jesus or come up with a verse that we are familiar with, then we are attracted to them and believe that everything they say is bound to be truth because they quoted our favorite verse or said that spiritual thing. And yet, did you know that you can be sincere in what you believe and be sincerely wrong? It may not be that somebody is intending to deceive you. They may be deceived themselves. They may be sincere in what they're saying, and yet they're wrong. John is writing a letter here, and we saw last week that he is writing to, in all likelihood, a group of churches in Asia Minor outside of Ephesus. He's in Ephesus while he's writing this, and he is writing to a group of churches that are struggling. 
They are not too far or many years removed from the ideal church of Acts chapter 2, and yet some 40 or 50 years later, there has been a split. People have left the church for theological reasons. It wasn't over the music. It wasn't over the renovation of the sanctuary. It was over theological reasons. And these who have left to start a new community are not content merely doing that. They are sending people back to the churches they have left, trying to convince more of them to join them in their leaving. And John is setting out to do a couple of things. He is setting out to assure the believers who remain, and he is setting out to show them that those who have left, who profess faith in Christ, really don't possess it. They say they believe, even as many do in our day, and yet they really don't have true, genuine salvation. Last week we dealt with proclaiming truth. This week we are dealing with practicing truth. That is, those who proclaim truth ought to give evidence that that proclamation is genuine by the way they practice the truth they proclaim. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. John says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Again, last week was proclaiming truth. That is, John set out to begin his letter by saying, that which I have seen, that which I have heard, that which I have touched... And he, he amasses all of these sensory words and repeats them. He says, this is the one I am proclaiming to you. And then when we come to verse 4, he says, this is the message. And that message is that this proclamation of the truth must be evidenced by the practicing thereof. So John is dealing with the false doctrine that is being espoused by those who have left the church they formed another community of believers on their own, and now he is going to contend that those who have left are really not believers at all. And in order to accomplish this, he begins by talking about the nature of God. If you and I are going to practice what we profess, then we must know something about the nature of God. Now, we're certainly not going to deal with this in detail this morning. There is much that we could talk about when, it, when, when, when we come to God's nature and in fact, that's what we're doing on Sunday nights in our life groups. If you've not joined a life group yet, it is not too late. You're just going to be one week behind. You can show up this evening, either at one of the homes or right here uh, in the church over in the chapel. But we're dealing with a book that looks at 10 attributes of God, that is characteristics of the nature of God that are true of God and God alone. In fact, tonight we're going to look at the fact that God is infinite which means that he cannot be measured. He is not limited. There is no way to quantify God because God is infinite, whereas we are finite. 
And so that is an aspect of the nature of God that we'll discuss tonight. But in this text, we see two things about the nature of God. First of all, we see that God is revealed. Now, that sounds rather obvious and even unimportant, but it is anything but. If God has revealed himself to us, then it is imperative that we know him as he has revealed himself, rather than imagining it according to our own desires. Now, the key words that tie in this second half of chapter 1 to the first are the words message and fellowship. We'll deal with fellowship in just a moment. Again, last week we talked about proclaiming truth. John saying that he had seen all of this and heard and felt and touched, and therefore he is proclaiming it. But it's more than that. This is a message about God that has been revealed to John and others. In other words, this is not something that John made up. This is not something that John invented. This is not a dream that he is sharing with us. This is something that John knows from firsthand experience because God revealed himself to John in Christ, and now John is revealing that to us and to all of those who would read the Scriptures. The false teachers were proclaiming their message to a limited audience. That is, there were certain qualifications that were necessary in order to join their group. They were the more intellectual. You had to know more to be a part of their group. Thus, the word Gnosticism from the Greek word to know. So you had to be super intellectual to be part of their extra knowledge. But you also had to be more spiritual. They were proclaiming their message to the spiritual elite asking those who were intelligent and spiritually mature to join them. And John says, no, the God who has revealed himself to us has revealed himself in a message that is to be proclaimed to all. The nature of God is he chooses to reveal himself not to the brightest and best alone, but to all. But not only is God revealed, that's the first act, aspect of his nature here, the aspect that he, John goes on to talk about then is that God is light. That is the main announcement that John makes in the first half of this letter. In fact, you could divide up the letter of 1 John into halves. The first half, God is light. The second half, God is love. Those are the two main attributes that John is going to be dealing with throughout this letter, and he's going to weave them in and out back and forth. In fact, that's one of the issues that some people have with the letter of 1 John is that it's really not all that structured. John repeats himself. He goes from one thing to the next and back to the other thing. And so I'm just telling you ahead of time that as we go through this letter, there is going to be repetition. We're going to be talking about the same thing over and over again at times because that is the way John has structured his letter. And so out of all of the attributes that John had available to him, out of all of the table of contents on that book you're going to look at tonight that John could have said, hey, this is the message. God is, he chooses the word light. Light and darkness are major motifs throughout both of the Old and New Testaments. And this is especially true in John's gospel, that earlier letter that he wrote, the gospel of John. He writes, and this is judgment, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought by or to God. 
And so it's easy from this passage to see that light represents good while darkness represents evil. This is the ethical sense of the metaphor. It turns out that our response to light is determined by our relationship with darkness. Say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. How do you respond when you are confronted with the lights on top of a police car? Well, it depends on what you were doing at the time. See, it depends on your relationship to darkness. That is, if you were doing something evil at the time and now you see police lights, you are anxious and nervous, you are worried that you have now been caught. In fact, you might even flee, not recommending it, but you might, you might flee from those police lights because you know you've been doing something that you shouldn't have been doing. On the other hand, you might have actually called for the police. You might have been doing nothing wrong. In fact, you yourself were in danger, and so you called the police, and so those lights are now reassuring. They are comforting because they are there to protect and serve you rather than the opposite. So it, it seems that our relationship to the light hinges upon our relationship to darkness. There is also a sense in which, of course, that light represents hope and anticipation. We turn the porch light on on the outside of our homes because we are expecting, because we are anticipating someone is arriving. We know that someone is coming and therefore we are welcoming them. And so we turn the light on to let them know that we knew they were coming. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of of life. Now, it's easy to stumble when you're in darkness because we can't see where we're going. That is why children are often afraid of darkness. In fact, sometimes we adults are afraid of darkness, though we don't like to admit it. But people are afraid of darkness because we cannot see what is in front of us and we don't know what lies ahead. But light illumines the way. That is why the psalmist could say, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God is light in that he shows us the way to true life. Light drives out darkness and light guides to true life. John's audience, again, was confused. They needed guidance. They were wondering if they were the ones wrong because so many of the best and brightest had left. And John is reassuring them that they do, in fact, know the truth because God is light and he is guiding them to truth. But there is more than that. Light is also symbolic of revelation and the salvation that we find in God's Word. That is why it says here, God is light. It doesn't say that God is a light. It doesn't say that God is the light. It simply says God is light. That is inherently part of His nature because He is the source of life. He is not pointing beyond Himself to something else because He Himself is light. As such, When we walk with him, and we'll talk about what that means in a moment, when we walk with him, he gives us meaning, direction, and purpose in life. The Christian life was not meant to be a mundane and dreary existence. It was meant to be an exciting adventure because we are following the light who is the light of life. Now, a few months ago, Tracy and I were doing some prison ministry on a Friday. We had found out that there was a particular woman in our church by the name of Ann Allen and her accomplice who were at Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary. Good to see you back out, Ann. Glad to have you back. 
And so Tracy and I went up there and found them, and we toured that facility. Now, if you don't know Ann or that facility, it used to be the worst of the worst. It used to be the state penitentiary that housed the worst criminals in the state of Tennessee. But it is no longer open as a prison. It is now a tourist attraction. We just happened to go up there on the same day that her and someone else were there. And so we went up there and toured, and one of the things we saw in the tour was down in the basement of one of the buildings was what they called the hole. The hole was the solitary confinement area of this prison. It was four or five cells. I don't remember exactly how many were there, but they were six by eight by three, tiny little cells, where the men who had gotten in trouble for something would be placed in those cells, in the hole, for up to 30 days at a time in complete darkness. Now, they had lights on when we were there so that we could see the cells, but in those days, there were no lights in those cells. It was absolutely and completely dark. The only thing they had in those cells were two bowls, one to uh, hold water to drink, and you can imagine what the other one was for. And the only interaction they had each day was a guard would bring them a meal which they described as a bowl of pureed nastiness, which I don't even want to know what that is. But the reason I tell you this story is this. After those men had been in the hole for 30 days, in absolute darkness, when they came out, they were blind. They couldn't see. They would have to have someone else. They would, they would assign another inmate to that man who had just come out of the hole for two to three days to guide that man around for two or three days until his eyes readjusted to the light and he could see once again. John tells us that God's nature is that he reveals himself to us and that he is light. He opens our eyes. He guides us out of darkness into the light of life, which he himself is. And so if you are going to practice your profession, if you are going to just not proclaim truth but practice it, then you must know a little bit about the nature of God. God's nature, he reveals himself to us as the God of light. Well, secondly, we want to notice we must also know sin's truth. It's not enough to know the nature of God. That's a good starting point. But we must also know sin's truth. John is addressing the beliefs and false ideas of those who have left the church. And he's saying to us, just because you say something doesn't make it true. And that's why I began the way I did. And it is a needed reminder as people continue to fall uh, suspect to claims that are not true. We must remember that just because someone says something doesn't make it true. Now, to do this, he gives us three statements. All of them begin with the same phrase, if we say. And all of them deal with the teaching of the false teachers and how they are wrong in their teaching about sin. And so if we're going to practice truth, we must know where they went astray. So the first of these statements is found in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the first thing we see is that sin breaks fellowship. You see, the false teachers were claiming to have fellowship with God when in fact they did not because they, that fellowship was broken due to their sin. They were walking in darkness, as John says, and yet they were claiming to have fellowship with God. 
And again, that's a message we need to hear in our day because there are so many, especially in our part of the country, who claim to have a relationship with God, but whose lives tell a much different story. You simply cannot divorce religion or Christianity from morality, though many people try. And we have generations, I'm not picking on a generation, we have generations of Americans who have been raised on and believe in what we call cheap grace or easy believism. Now that phrase cheap grace is a word we saw in our last life group book. And what it means is this idea that because God's salvation is by grace through faith, it's not any mixture of works, therefore all you got to do is pray a prayer and you'll be fine. All you got to do is perhaps be baptized and you're assured that everything is all right. Maybe you have to join a church, but some element of these things leads people to believe that it now matters not what they do the rest of their life. Because they've prayed a prayer, they are assured of going to heaven when they die, therefore what they do between now and then is largely irrelevant. But is that what the Bible teaches? Well, it doesn't seem to be what John is saying here when he says, if you, have, if you say you have fellowship with God and yet you walk in darkness, you're a liar. It's certainly not what Paul says in Romans. Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he's taking the logical argument of people who say that if we are saved by grace, perhaps it is better to sin more because if we sin more, we'll get more grace. And Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, God forbid, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, what does it mean to walk in darkness? That word walk doesn't mean literally walk. It's a, it's a way of speaking. It means that your lifestyle. It is the way we live in this case. Now, does that mean that we must be perfect? Does it mean you and I must live lives of perfection? In order to be assured that we are not walking in darkness and therefore we are genuinely saved, John is not talking about perfection. He is talking about a lifestyle. None of us are perfect. There's never been anybody perfect except Christ, so we're not seeking perfection. He's talking about a lifestyle. So if your lifestyle, if the characteristic of your life is that you are living in sin and rebellion and disobedience to God, then John is saying you don't have fellowship with God no matter how much you might say you do. And it's as simple as that. And so he's basically saying you might as well stop claiming it because you are a liar. That's his words, not mine. I'm not pointing my finger at anybody and saying that you are a liar. I'm simply repeating what John says. If we say we have fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness, we lie. You are a liar. We don't like to be called liars, do we? I mean, that's a heavy claim in our day. I mean, nobody wants to be called a liar. I got a phone call this week from somebody in Nashville. Now, I don't normally answer the phone if I don't know who it is. Maybe you do the same thing. You look at there and you say, well, I don't know anybody there. I'm not going to answer it. If they want to talk to me, they'll leave a message. So if I don't know your number sometime and I don't answer, leave a message. I'll call you back because I don't want to deal with those sales calls. But I got a call from somebody in Nashville, and I thought, well, I know some people in Nashville. Not many, but a few. So I'll answer this call. And I answered the call, and a guy says to me, hey, I missed your call. This is Robert. What did you want? And I said, Robert, I didn't call you. I don't know who you are. He says, well, my phone doesn't lie. And then we ended our conversation. <laughs> I mean, we didn't hang up. I'm not saying that. We just said, okay, you know. But after I got off the phone with him, I thought to myself, he was calling me a liar. 
he was saying that it was true that I had called him because my number appeared on his phone. Evidently, he doesn't understand that these scammers can hijack your phone number and call other people and make it appear that you called them. I guess he doesn't get that. And so he said, I was the one lying. And after we hung up, I thought, that guy just called me a liar. I thought about calling him back. I didn't. I was good. But it bothered me for a few minutes that he called me a liar. And that's a trivial issue. It really didn't matter. I didn't know him. It wasn't a big issue. But I didn't like the idea that someone thought I was a liar. Well, if your profession of faith turns out to be a lie, it is no laughing or trivial matter. John says the truth is it breaks fellowship with God. And so if you're living a life of sin and you're walking in darkness... You do not have the light of salvation. Now look again at verse 7 before we move on here. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship. Now we would expect John to say we have fellowship with God. Now we do have that, and he is going to say that, but in verse 7, that's not what he says. In verse 7 he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And this is the connection with what we talked about last week, in that fellowship has both a vertical element and a horizontal element, the vertical being fellowship with God, which invariably leads to the horizontal, which is fellowship with one another. And the two always go together so that our relationship with God on a vertical level is expressed by our relationship with one another on the horizontal level. And again, this is going to be a recurring theme. But I bring it up again this morning, not only because it's in the text, but because it is a major issue in our day where people say, well, I I love God. I have fellowship with God. I'm saved. I know him. I don't have any doubts about that. But I want nothing to do with the church nor his people. John says that simply is not the case. I've been told that numerous times. I've actually been told from church members of this church when I call them to try to get them back. And they will say, listen, I have better fellowship with God by myself than I can have at the church. And that's simply not biblical. No matter what they may claim and no matter what they may profess, it's not biblical because fellowship with God, John says, invariably leads to fellowship with one another. In other words, people who cut themselves off from fellowship with God are giving evidence that they, that people that cut themselves off of fellowship with others, I should say, are giving evidence that they don't have fellowship with God. Now, I am not talking about a shut-in. I'm not talking about someone who physically can't get out of their house and come to the church. I'm not talking about a missionary who's in a remote part of the world where they do not have other Christians to associate with. I'm talking about someone who willfully and intentionally cuts themselves off from the body of Christ saying they don't need that. They'll just stick with God. John says fellowship with God is evident by fellowship with one another. The second truth is not only what we've already seen, that sin breaks fellowship, But secondly then, sin continues faithfully. Verse 8 is our second if we say statement. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Evidently they were claiming that they were not sinning in the present. That is, perhaps since their experience with Christ, their professed experience with Christ, they no longer sin seems to be their claim. But again, The prerequisite here is not perfection in the present. That's not what gets us fellowship, as we'll see in a moment. Confession is. I'm not claiming to be perfect, 
And I certainly hope you're not making that claim either. Christians do not claim to be perfect. They claim to be forgiven of their sins. And so we acknowledge that not only have we sinned in the past, but we continue to sin in the present. This is something I try to talk to people about when they are considering faith in Christ or have come to faith in Christ. I, I want to make sure they understand that just because you've asked Jesus into your heart and you've been baptized and saved, that does not mean that you will not sin. We continue to sin. Even as we want to be faithful in our relationship with Christ and are not as faithful as we would like to be, sin is even more faithful because we are going to sin. You've sinned this morning already, whether you'll admit it or not. And we're going to sin this afternoon, whether you admit it or not. In fact, if I might go back to that Who's Your One campaign, which I'm going to do all year. You're going to get tired of it. You're going to start rolling your eyes every time I pause in a sermon to think about it. But you got that card. If you didn't get that card, they're still out there in the foyer. You got that card to write your name of the friend or family member or someone you know that you believe does not know Christ, and you're praying for them already. It's only a couple of weeks in, so maybe you haven't had an opportunity to talk to them yet. But when you get that opportunity, you're probably going to have to do one of two things. Number one, you might have to convince them that they really are a sinner in need of a Savior. I don't mean that they're going to think they're perfect. I don't run across a lot of people that say, no, I'm perfect. I don't need Christ. But I am saying that you are going to run across people who think their sins are not all that big of a deal. They haven't committed any of the big ones, whatever they put in that category. And therefore, because they haven't committed any of the big sins, they believe that they don't really need a Savior. I'm not as bad as somebody else. I've not done as much as someone else. And therefore, I'm good with God because my sins are rather trivial. You might have to start out your witnessing and evangelizing of them by trying to convince them that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that includes them. And their sin, no matter what measure or quantity it is, has separated them from God, and therefore, they do need a Savior. That may be something you have to do right off the bat. But there's another extreme as well. And that is you may run across people who think to themselves and say to you, there's no way God could save me. If you knew what I've done, you wouldn't even be talking to me. If you knew how many sins and what sins I've committed, you would know that God could never save me. So what we might have to do in our evangelism is one of two things. We might have to convince people that they are a sinner and need a Savior. Or on the other side, we might have to convince someone that, yes, they've sinned, but nobody is too bad that they cannot be saved. Nobody is too good that they don't need to be saved, and nobody is too bad that they can't be saved because all have sinned. And if we do not believe that, John makes very clear that we are deceiving ourselves. And that is certainly something that is easier to do than we might expect. And so at first, he says, if we say we have fellowship, but we walk in darkness, we lie. Now, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we're deceiving ourselves. Then the third one is found in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, that sounds an awful lot like verse 8. In fact, there are commentators who believe that it's just a restatement. It doesn't mean anything different. It's basically just the same statement said again. There are others who believe that based on the, the tense of the verb here, that there is a difference. That now it is possible that John is saying, we don't know this for certain, but it's possible that John is, is saying that the false teachers are not only claiming perfection in the present, that is, we do not sin anymore, but now they might be saying, nor did we really in the past. And if they, if they don't sin in the present and they haven't sinned in the past, 
then there's certainly no need for the incarnation of Christ. You see how serious this false teaching is? We mentioned last week that fundamental to the things that they are falsely teaching is that Jesus did not come in the flesh and that therefore he did not die for our sins. No atonement is necessary. Once again, this this, uh, misunderstands the whole nature of the gospel, that all have sinned and that Christ has died for our sins. Now notice also the escalation in the charges. At first it was, you are a liar. That is, you're lying to others, which is bad enough. But the second one said, you deceive yourselves. That is, now you're lying to yourself. You can't even tell the difference between true and false any longer. You don't know the difference between good and evil. But the third statement says, we make him, that is God, a liar. The person who says they've never sinned is calling God a liar because God has said that all have sinned. Paul wrote, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's just one example of the teaching of Scripture that there are no exceptions. It basically sums up the testimony of the Bible when it comes to sin, that all have sinned. There is no one who is an exception other than Christ himself. And so you and I will never truly practice truth until we know a little bit about the nature of God. He is a God who has revealed himself to us, and part of that revelation is that God is light. But then we need to know the truth about sin, that sin breaks fellowship, it continues faithfully, and yet it began formally. We were born sinners, and because of that, we sin, and we continue to do so. That is why we need a Savior. But we certainly can't stop there. We need to move forward to talk about Christ's remedy. You cannot practice your profession without knowing that Christ has satisfied your sin debt. Every time John gives one of these if-we-say statements that is referring to the false teachers, he couples that with a positive statement about what Christ has done for us. First, we see, verse 9, that we are to confess our need. Verse 9 is the one, of the most, one of the most encouraging and, and comforting verses in the entire New Testament. If we confess our sin, God, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word cleanse basically, or the word confess, I should say, basically means agree with. That is, when we, you and I agree with God that we have indeed sinned, then He is faithful to forgive us of that sin. Now, I'm not talking about that general statement that we throw on, on at the end of all of our prayers. Oh yeah, and by the way, forgive me of all my sins. Uh, that's, a, that's a general thing we throw out there to assure ourselves that God indeed has forgiven us of everything. But what the Bible speaks about here is specifically agreeing with God about sin, confessing, acknowledging to God that, yes, I sin in this manner and in this way. Let me remind you of some high-profile confessions of sin in the Bible. Even though some of these occasions the word sin is not there, it is clearly a confession of sin in all three examples I'm going to give you. The first goes back to Isaiah chapter 6. Perhaps you're familiar with that. The great passage where Isaiah sees God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. And then we see that when Isaiah is confronted with this holy God, the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, 
for I am undone. He's confessing that he is a sinner, even though the word's not there. Woe is me, for I am undone, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is confessing that not only is he a sinner, but all those who live around him are as well. What about Peter? Remember that occasion where Peter and some of his associates have been fishing all night and they've caught nothing? The next morning, Jesus arrives and Jesus says, boys, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And Peter basically says, Lord, we've been doing this all night. We're tired, we're hungry, we're frustrated. But if you say cast the net over there, we will. And they did. And they caught so many fish that the boat begins to sink. And what is Peter's response? Well, you might think Peter would say, boys, we got a lot of work to do. This is a bunch of fish to clean. Or it might be praise. God, thank you for this abundance of fish that we can now provide for our families. But what does Peter say? Peter looks at Jesus and he says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Peter comes face to face with this event that tells him something about the nature of Christ, his immediate reaction is, I am sinful. I do not, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. What about Paul? Well, Paul, in writing to Timothy, said, Timothy, here is a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief or the worst. These men, when confronted with a holy God, immediately recognized their own sinfulness, and as a result, they confessed it. And if you want to experience the remedy of Christ, you must be willing to do the same thing. And I I do not mean to say that just in that initial moment when you need to be saved. I'm talking about an ongoing aspect of our lives as Christians. Yes, it does begin at the beginning, but an ongoing aspect of our lives as a Christian whereby we are daily confessing our sins and therefore we are receiving the remedy of Christ, which is the forgiveness of our sins. So having experienced a confession of your need, the next step in Christ's remedy, verses 9 and 10, is to experience the cleansing both verses 9 and 10, or verses 9 and 7, I should say, talk about this step. Verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. What does that mean? Well, faithful means that God is going to do what he says. So if God has made a promise to forgive our sins when we confess, then God is going to be faithful in fulfilling that. Well, what does the word just mean? This speaks about what God was able to do in Christ at the cross. You see, God did not sweep our sins under the rug. God did not say, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. God said it is a very big deal because I'm a holy God and your sin separates you from me. And that's what we see on the cross. God in Christ paying the sin debt for our sin, experiencing the wrath of God on our behalf. That is why God can forgive us of our sins and yet be a just God at the same time because the penalty for sin has been paid for, not by us, but it has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says much the same thing in different words. The blood of Jesus cleanses or purifies us from sin. The hymn writer says, what can wash away my sin? The answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now suppose you had some garbage in the house that you just didn't frankly feel like taking out today. You didn't feel like taking it out tomorrow either. A few days, it's not a big deal. 
but eventually the trash can begins to overflow. And if you've got kids in the house, you know that, that they don't, that doesn't mean they take the trash out. It means they just throw something else on top of it. If it falls over, it falls over. But it starts to smell, doesn't it? The garbage begins to smell. And you know you need to take it out, but you just don't. And so the garbage keeps piling up and piling up, and therefore it keeps smelling, and that aroma of the garbage begins to permeate the entire house so that the first thing you smell when you come into the door every single day is the smell of that garbage. That's why we take it out all the time, because we don't want it to smell up our house and permeate the entire atmosphere. And what John is saying is that when, when we don't confess our sins, when we don't take the garbage out, it begins to permeate all of our lives, our relationships, our work, our home, our leisure. Everything is affected by the smell and stain of sin, but daily confession leads to experiencing the cleansing that comes only through Christ. He not only takes away our sin, he removes the stain as well. Now, that doesn't mean that you might not experience the consequences, but he cleanses, he purifies us from sin. Leaving us then, thirdly, to follow his example. Walk in the light as he is in the light is the way John phrases it. Now walk, I don't think I said this earlier, walk does not mean literally walk. Maybe I said it, if so, I'll repeat it. Walk doesn't mean literally walking, it's a, it's a lifestyle, it's a characteristic. So John says, walk in the light as he is in the light. So once we have those others, we are prepared to walk with Jesus. And John is saying very plainly here that walking with Jesus is, the, is a mark of true Christianity. Remember, he's trying to assure those who remain that they are genuinely in the faith by pointing out the lives of those who have left and the fact that they do not have the marks of genuine salvation. So this is not something we can take or leave. This is not an optional add-on for people who are really serious. Walking in the light of Christ is a mark of genuine salvation. Now again, I know that many of us like to assume that everybody is telling the truth. We like to think the best of people and know that if they say they're saved, well, they really are. And we've been conditioned by our culture that we are not to judge anyone. You have no right to judge anyone for anything is the way we're told. Fact is, we judge people all the time. Even though it's not politically correct, we make snap judgments about people all the time. Now, I do not say any of that because what I want you to do is to start judging everybody else's salvation. That's not the point. There actually is a place for that, but that's not the point this morning. So I'm not telling you to look at everybody else's life and try to decide which one's saved and which one's not. My point is simply that proclaiming the truth that is saying you believe, is not enough. The demons believe, James says, and they tremble. Your proclamation of the truth must be evidenced by your practicing of the truth. That is not work salvation. That is genuine salvation shows itself in fruit, something we've talked about repeatedly. So basically, when we come down to the end here, there are, there are two options. We've made it clear, I hope you believe it, but we've made it clear that all have sinned. There is no exceptions. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now there are two reactions to that. If all of us are in the same boat, that we're all sinners, there's two reactions. Number one, you can conceal your sin. You can hide it. You can deny it. You can rationalize it. You can justify it. 
You can do all sorts of gymnastics to conclude that it's not all that big a deal. I really don't need a Savior. The end result of that option is you're a liar. Again, that's John's words, not mine. I'm not calling anybody a liar. John is. The second option is to confess your sin. And John says when we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us all of our sins and we will be cleansed and forgiven. So you can be called a liar for denying sin or you can be called forgiven for confessing sin. And if we put it in merely those two categories, I sure know which one sounds best to me. And I hope you do as well. Let me pray.